Hello and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pat. Now, conjure up in your mind a picture of a Liberal Democrat campaigning and chances are you've thought of a picture of someone pointing, maybe a pothole, dumped rubbish or graffiti perhaps. That sort of local activism is at the heart of Liberal Democrats, both our approach to campaigning and our belief in local community action, taking practical action to improve people's lives. So I'm delighted to welcome on the show this time someone who posts even more photos of local things that need fixing than me, Councillor Rachel Bentley from Southwark. Welcome, Rachel. Hello, Mark. Thank you for having me. Now, before we get stuck into what life is like for you as a councillor and in a labour run borough to boot, let's get a little bit of background for people who haven't come across your amazing Twitter feed previously. What got you into politics in the first place? Well, I joined in a fit of rage in 2017 because I was feeling really frustrated with the way the country was going under Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn. And I look back at those days and think, gosh, you know, it almost feels like the Hallison days of, of you know, things are things oh, were bright. Theresa May, suddenly she seems like quite a decent prime minister after all. Exactly. So, yeah, I joined, I think it was February 2017. And then we had a snap election later that year. And like all good Liberal Democrats and certainly the Southwark Liberal Democrats, they phoned me up and said, right, what are you going to do? And next thing I knew, I was out knocking on doors. And and since then, it's really just been uh, a progressive increase you know, in my activity. I'm, I'm you paused there because you were about to say slide, weren't you, as if it's <laughs> downhill. From I was trying to find a positive way of, of expressing it. But yeah, so I, I was elected in 2022 as a councillor and I'm currently the PPC for Bermondsey and Old Southwark as well. Excellent and that is a quite famous part of London. I think even people who haven't been to London very often, chances are they've seen bits of your ward on the telly or in films at various points, haven't they? Because uh, it's especially quite a favourite filming location for episodes of Doctor Who over the years, isn't it? Right along the Thames at the top top of your ward. So do you want to say a little bit about your ward? Yeah, so my ward is North Bermondsey, which has one quarter of Tower Bridge in it, which is obviously one of our great icons. The best very, quarter, of course. The, absolutely, absolutely. But we also have, in the area, we have the Globe Theatre, um, which is a wonderful addition. Uh, we have the Brunel Tunnel, we have all sorts of, of ancient, right from Roman times, actually, and just very recently, some Roman ruins were found whilst they were, sorry, my cat has literally just invaded. We we had, he's quite famous in, in the Southern Liberal Democrats for his commitment to participation in, in Zoom activities. But yes, we have found some recently some Roman ruins, but all through the through the ages, you can find uh, absolute gems of, of London's history right here in Bermondsey and Old Southwark. And it's a real mix of old and new, isn't there? I just think that little stretch where you can walk from Tower Bridge to the west, you've got you know, things like Tower Bridge, the Globe Theatre, some very modern housing developments. It's, a, you know, it it's in a way it's mixed sort of urbanism almost at its best. Now, I guess that's a little bit the slightly twee touristy face of it, particularly, you know, in the immediate vicinity of Tower Bridge and so on. What's the sort of reality of the rest of the ward? Is it all free tourism land? No, and I think that's something that's absolutely critical to keep mentioning that you have this slither of affluence really along the river. Not not entirely, but there's you know pretty much those kind of river-facing properties. And then you can go 
almost one street back and you are in social housing. Southwark is one of the largest social housing providers in the country and you just see a completely different picture. And all of those things that we, we've been hearing on the news with our UBS law around damp and mould in social housing, that is absolutely an issue here in London. We've got issues of overcrowding, just disrepair. So it's it's very, very stark and you can literally see it from street to street. Presumably there is an upside as well. You know, often people are worried about society becoming more divided, people separating into their own communities, etc. In a way, it feels like your ward is almost the antithesis of that. But presumably that has both ups and downsides of such stark contrast, almost just when you turn a corner from a very affluent street to a rather more challenging area. I think there are pros and cons. I go to obviously a lot of community meetings and it's interesting to see different types of of people kind of rubbing along together and that commitment particularly to I think the area's heritage but also its beautification you know wanting to keep it clean wanting to make it greener wanting to make it safer those are shared interests and and I think you know regardless of what demographic you are you are they they are priorities but I do think there are also uh, differences in, in, for example, access to certain public services. There's a there's a GP surgery that is closer to the river that is very easy to get appointments at. You go to one a couple of streets over and it's much harder. And that's because of their kind of catchment area. I think also where people shop, we're seeing that there is, once again, that, that point you mentioned, that kind of touristy stretch, you know, uh, businesses and restaurants and cafes along that stretch do pretty well because there's huge millions, millions of people come there. Um, but you go kind of a few streets over and you can see places that that really do struggle, um, particularly um, around price and around staffing um, and getting and meeting their rents as well. I, I guess the mix maybe does make, in a way, Lib Dem campaigning slightly ethically easier, by which I mean, I'm, for example, the street that I live in is quite mixed housing, so private, social housing, council housing, and I'm a real demon for being on the council's back about failure to sweep the streets properly. You know, I will send them photos each day of the same bit of litter saying, so your daily sweep has now not happened for three days in a row, four days in a row, etc., and you can tell that the area that I frequent and I badger the council about actually is swept better than a street that you go around the corner that I don't normally walk down. And in other circumstances, I would feel, I think rightly, a bit guilty about essentially you no know, sharp elbowed middle class person getting public services. But because the street is so mixed, actually, in that sense, I feel, you know, I'm doing a reasonable public service at holding you know, a council to account, and I'm not, in that sense, benefiting better off people at the expense of less well-off people. And that is all often quite a risk with particularly our very street-level type campaigning, that we're really good at getting potholes fixed in the areas that we, we represent. And that may not always, that may sometimes, if the areas we represent be more affluent, actually help widen rather than narrow inequalities. Presumably, in some, that is one of the upsides, that you can be an absolute demon at that street-level campaigning knowing that you know you're not risking any of that imbalance so it is interesting you mentioned that because it has been something that we've been absolutely banging on about we have 11 councillors in our group and we just feel that 
you know, the state of the streets, the state of the bins, the statistics that came out this week were that, you know, Southwark's recycling rates are dropping. They've gone down to 30%. They were at just under 35% in 2014-15. This just isn't good enough. But because I keep banging on about it, I last, I think it was in December, you know, arranged four separate walk-arounds with, you know, the cabinet member for streets, council officers, you know, walking around pointing at the same fly tipping the same rubbish same bins and it did generate some results but as you say now the alleyway opposite my house you can't see a speck of dust on it but that's not we need a strategy you know it shouldn't just be like you say pointing at those particular areas but we are seeing a shift in focus I would hope on that um, because certainly you know, the, the words and the actions of, of the Labour and Council here just do not marry up. Uh, and people notice it. I think, as you say, people notice rubbish. People notice litter. This is it's not just a middle class gripe. It, it is a shared concern. I also think there is a broader pattern across London, maybe outside London as well. But particularly, I've noticed it in London where there was a whole set of councils that used to be really badly run by Labour. And as a result, particularly in some previous Lib Dem heyday years, there was a real political challenge. We often ended up running the council, but, you know, but partly due to, you know, Labour councillors actually wanting to sort things out, partly due to Labour central office, thing, you know, holding their head in their hands, partly due to our growing political strength. Those councils improved massively in how they were providing basic public services. You think of the horror stories of the likes of Lambeth yeah, and indeed Southwark, you know, in the past. That, that And there was a phase then when those councils were much better run. But now I just get that sense that that, that generation of Labour councillors who are very focused on how to improve basic public services have, as it were, been and gone. And the new sort of current generation doesn't have anything like the same interest or expertise in doing that. And just so much stuff is run a bit mediocre, isn't it? Well, I'm I'm relatively new to this. Mm. I got elected in in 2022, but for me, there's a point around you know if we are outsourcing something, if we are paying a private company to deliver a service, and you can see with your own eyes that it's just not being done well, the question needs to be why? Why are why are our, our recycling rates low? And one of the excuses that I heard last year was, well, Southwark, you know, it's you know you've got the affluent part at the bottom, you know, kind of very crowded, kind of bit in 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 the top and the middle, and huge amounts of turnover. So therefore, if the recycling in the north and the middle of the borough was at the level of the south of the borough, we'd be you know at sixty percent. So it was like, okay, well, what are you going to do about it? You know. Clearly, you need a strategy that accounts for those different areas. You don't just say, oh, sorry, people in the north of the borough don't recycle. <laughs> you know, this is madness. But it's, I just don't think it is seen as being important. You know, that's, as I say, it's a bit of a middle class gripe that, that you care about clean streets. And in, in our experience, talking to residents, this is something that they absolutely do care about. And it, it's, I think it's symbolic, right? If you can't empty the bins, what else can't you do? Yeah, because that's pretty basic. And indeed, and you know, try try, you know, pushing a push chair, pulling a shopping trolley, being in a wheelchair on a pavement that's badly maintained. And you know, you very quickly realize this isn't just about 
wanting an area to look nice and smart it's it's actually about the real you know the day-to-day reality of inconveniences in people's lives isn't it well last I think it was last week I got to speak on a panel about street clutter in London and it was I mean honestly it was like a dream come true (laughs) and and it was a packed room you could see that people really care about this and once again it's not just about oh, this street looks cluttered and, and unattractive. It is about, as you say, those points about accessibility. You know, if you have young children, if you're in a wheelchair, if you're visually impaired, can you get around our city? Are you able to get to the shops? Are you able to get to, you know, hospital appointments in an easy way? And as I say, whether that be piles of rubbish, whether it be, you know, dockless bikes or or kind of defunct street furniture, that 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 does matter. And I heard whilst I was there that businesses increasingly are saying, we're not quite sure we do want to come to London, you know, and invest in, you know, we come and look at these places and, and the streetscape in so many areas just really doesn't feel as attractive as it could have done. And I think that's something that we need to think about, as, as I say, putting this, there's an economic argument there, as well as a social one about what, what is the public realm and, and how attractive is it? Now, I'm just the jobbing amateur when it comes to this, not being a councillor myself. So I feel quite good about having got the council to agree to remove a new traffic feature sign that's been up for a decade the other day. That was my success on Street Clutter last week. But you actually have the privilege, onus, responsibility, whatever the word is, of being a councillor as well. So how have you found it being a councillor in particular, how much and you know you're a councillor in opposition but being a councillor nonetheless is a position of authority in some you know to some extent how much of a difference have you found that that makes being a councillor in terms of your ability to get things done for your community it's a good question because I remember before I got elected speaking to one of our our kind of real community activists and she said to me it'll be interesting to see if you can achieve more mm. and there have been there have been frustrating days when you just feel like you are banging your head against a brick wall and say going back to those points around look there is a commitment to do something or you are paying a private company to do something why is this not actually being delivered that is our money how is it being spent but I think the the real power that you have in opposition, so is that holding to account? I think that calling, you know, you making effective use of scrutiny. But the other thing that we've, I think, been really successful at here in Southwark is that power to convene. So working with other partners, whether they be charitable or other bodies that have a say in how our society and our community here is, and really bringing those people together. So for example, we've done some work with various charities around cleanups on the Thames. Or, or looking at kind of pollution and, and trying to to highlight that. So not just kind of working with them, but getting kind of members of the community together um, for activities. Another one we uh, that I'm quite personally proud of is um, there's a literacy charity here in Southwark, and they contacted every, they contacted officers, they contacted every councillor to say, we need some spaces. We need a space in Southwark for our one-to-one literacy sessions. Half an hour, we need a, a kind of quiet room, but ideally in a in a kind of visible space from a safeguarding point of view. Well, I'd 
just had a couple of conversations with businesses in the area who said, as part of our outreach, as part of our social value, we want to make our space available to community groups. And lo and behold, was able to marry them up. And now, you know, that's taking place because there are, I was astonished to find out there are 2 million people in, in the UK who are illiterate, mm. you know, and, and quite a lot of them, believe it or not, are here, are here in, in Bermondsey. Um, not all of the 2 million, obviously. Yeah. And so it sounds like you're quite enjoying being a councillor, that you're finding it quite fruitful in terms of ability to bring about change. I, I often say to my colleagues, I'm either in a state of euphoria or a state of rage. But one of the things I've done, I, I absolutely would recommend this to others. But what I have done is I started to keep a list of things that I've achieved or when people have said to me, yeah, I'm really grateful that you did that, really appreciated your intervention, because I think you do need those things which which reassure you that you're not just flailing around, you know, howling at the wind. You are actually make able to make changes in people's lives. There's a building opposite me that had didn't have accessibility. It didn't have an accessible ramp, but it has people in it who are effectively housebound without that. I don't know how long it had been without this ramp, but I was banging on about it. And one day I could hear this terrible noise, you know, drilling and hammering. I was like, what on earth is going on out there? I looked out the window and lo and behold, they'd oh. installed the disability ramp. So yeah, we call it Rachel's ramp. And periodically <laughs> I, I kind of walk down it just to just to remind myself that you can make real tangible I difference. hope your election address will have a photo of you pointing at it. <laughs> Quite possibly. You never know. <laughs> um, but I'm sure it's not all as successful as that particularly because we don't run the council so you know what's what's your your experience been more generally about what the council's getting sort of right or wrong and what you therefore have to really get stuck into at that more council-wide level so in Southwark we don't have any Tories we don't have any Greens it is just Lib Dem and Labour and so often you can feel like you're kind of fighting almost for the same things, particularly, you know, around kind of progressive points, you know, so we're almost trying to drag them with us. And, and sometimes they'll, well, not sometimes, they will pretty much always vote against things that we propose, even if it's something that we know that they would agree with. And then a kind of couple of months later, they'll propose something very similar. You know, and you just think, well, you know, we got there in the end, right? We're trying to serve our residents. And and we've seen that on green finance. We've, what else have we seen that on? We've, we've been calling for changes to scrutiny because certainly the scrutiny system here in Southwark was not working and we've got some changes there. So we do see that what, there are areas where we can hold that cabinet system to account much more effectively. But I don't think any any councillor really relishes council assembly. It does feel like that's not really where the work is getting done. It is those meetings out with residents. It's doing your casework. It's really bringing the attention to those things and getting that aspect done. It can feel like it's it's a lot of hot air, really. Council assembly is the Suffolk equivalent of a full council meeting, presumably. Exactly, yeah. Another thing that, w- that we've been doing that I think has proved quite successful and I think some backbench Labour councillors have done the same is deputations so getting residents Mm. to come and speak they get four minutes they're they're pretty strict on the time but they're able to come and speak about an issue that's that's happening in their area and we've seen that recently with damp and mould with major works some real scandals there have been unearthed that I don't think anybody would deem to be acceptable. 
Yeah. And just, I mean, dampened mould has become a huge issue. I suspect partly because the issue has got worse, but also partly because much more attention has rightly started being paid to it. So it's, you know, it's it's caught people's attentions and budgets in a way that it didn't previously. And, and one very striking example was, I don't know if you encountered this, but I needed actually a little bit of work done in my flat last year that was delayed hugely because of a nationwide shortage of thermal paint which is one of the sorts of you know materials that's often used when dealing with them because you know there'd been such a sudden upsurge in councils and the like finally doing some work at least on their properties and yeah and it, it's one of those bizarre little details like how can there be a nationwide shortage of this but in a way in a although it was a little bit annoying for me it was really a good sign that a lot of more work was suddenly happening partly driven actually by some very good and heart-moving investigative journalism, things like particularly regional media in London, for example, have run some absolutely horrific stories in the last few years. What's what's the situation like that in Southwark? And, and do you think that generally government and the public sector in that sense is now taking the issue seriously or is there more to do? There's definitely a lot more to do. I've been to visit some absolutely mm. appalling homes. We've, we've managed to get some moved and particularly you know children mm. i visited a property i think it was about two weeks ago where a mother and three children all sleep in the living room because it's the only room that they can keep warm that doesn't have damp the council have been in several times to try and treat mm. the the issue but I, I i think it's it appears i'm not a i'm not an engineer don't understand these things from a, a technical perspective but the work that they have done has not managed to fix the issue and that seems to be quite a widespread problem in particular blocks one of the things that people have raised is that they do feel it's getting worse and like you i'm not sure if that is that there's more attention on it but if somebody's lived in a house for for 30 40 years they've they've maybe had new windows installed and the, and they feel that the damp and mold has worsened since those um, windows have been installed one does have to question like is it actually getting worse have some of the changes that have needed to be installed in order to improve the energy efficiency of homes from a kind of ratings perspective actually then created some other problems and then the other thing that has been raised is particularly here in Southwark on a lot of our estates is the quality of some of those installations. So windows may have been fitted, but actually you can see that that they really haven't been sized up properly. Yeah. And so they've kind of filled the edge, which then maybe has created these problems with with certainly drafts, but also then damper mould starting to come and appear. I mean, I guess putting it very simply, the, the two main causes aren't they one is lack of ventilation and the other is the property being cold. And as you say, yeah. the first mate, ironically have in part been triggered by work being done to improve the sort of insulation in, in properties. The second, I guess, may also be an increasing problem just because of how much fuel bills, you know, have gone up and how much, you know, for example, benefits have have not caught, kept up with, with the pressures on cost of living in the last few years. And therefore, that just people's properties are colder often than they would have been a few years ago. And it, it can only be... It, you know, it's a very small temperature difference can sometimes quite make quite a dramatic difference, can't it, to how much condensation and hence mould you get in a flat. Yeah, something else that we've been seeing here is that the council has been giving out little monitors 
so that you can monitor the kind of humidity in your particular home. And also, I think it does measure the temperature. But I agree with you, certainly around here. And, and very sadly, I think a lot with our, our kind of older and, and some of our more vulnerable residents, they are absolutely petrified about the bills and the cost of living. And like you say, cannot afford to heat their homes. I mean, it's absolutely heartbreaking. And I think this is one of the things that we always try and stress. You know, this is a part of London and say that it seemed to be incredibly iconic and affluent, but there is deep deviation um, yeah. um, in, in, in SE1 and SE16. And what do you feel is the solution? Is there, are there particular things that obviously, you know, you've mentioned taking up individual bits of casework, but is there a more systematic or systemic problem that needs tackling well, that case that I just mentioned of the family were all sleeping in the living room every night. I, I, I think she first got in touch with me, oh, kind of November, December, because she was really feeling quite unheard. And then I suddenly received kind of two more bits of casework, and I thought, hold on a minute, that's number fifty-eight, number fifty-five, mm. number forty-five. It's all in the same block. So I'm actually planning to visit one of the other ones this afternoon who who seems to have a similar issue. And I say, that's we can deal with the individual bits of casework, but we've got to be raising the broader issue that hold on a minute, I think this block's got some serious issues. Is it on your list for major works? Have you done major works already? Is this building fit for purpose? The other challenge that we see, though, I mean, there are blocks around um, Southwark where they they have been kind of condemned. You know, they're no longer fit for for human habitation. Mm. But knocking those down and rebuilding something else is going to take a lot of time. It's going to take a lot of money. And we here have seventeen thousand households at least on the council house waiting list. Mm. Well, you know, it's it's not like we have a surplus. Um, yeah. where can those people go the other thing I was going to say that we're seeing in terms of solutions we see councils particularly in a London one saying to somebody right well we can we can't house you here but we can send you somewhere else mm. you know and so we've had cases multiple cases of families being told oh you know you can move to Colchester mm. or Dover or mm. wherever mm. <laughs> people are saying well hold on a minute, I've got a job here in London. I've got kids at school. I can't go and move move to Colchester. We've got a case right now of a woman who hasn't had a working kitchen for three years. And yeah, they offered to move her to Colchester. And so she's kind of left between a bit of a rock and a hard place. You know, does she keep going with no kitchen or does she move to Colchester temporarily whilst this gets fixed in some undefined period of time? So it really does feel like we've got to get a handle and by we, I mean the country on our housing issues, because we do have people with roofs over their head, but they're absolutely inadequate, unsafe, insecure, and, and really limiting people's life chances. Yeah. We talked quite a lot about housing and about sort of street level issues. Is there anything else that's, you know, particularly been filling up your correspondence bag since becoming a councillor? Gosh, well, there is one thing that has been <laughs> absolutely filling up my correspondence bag, and that is the Ocean Diva. So I don't know if you've heard of the Ocean Diva, but it was, I got elected, I think, on the 5th of May 2022. 
and I think it was about the 10th of May 2022, that the issue of Ocean Diva came to light. So Ocean Diva was supposed to be the, the largest luxury events vessel that was ever going to sail on the Thames. And the plan had been, you know, it was it was going to come over, it was going to be built, uh, it was going to have its home in Newham at the Royal Docks. But the plan for it was to, to dock in my ward up to 100 times a year, um, and have hold over a thousand people, six hundred on outdoor decks. Well, as you can imagine, this this didn't go down well mm. with some of my my residents, and we received over a thousand, well, nearly a thousand mm. objections about it. But what Ocean Diva really highlighted was this question of who owns the Thames, who mm. who gets to decide what happens on the Thames, and what Ocean Diva, the real legacy of Ocean Diva is that it came to light that there's very little public scrutiny over the river, that it's actually controlled by the Port of London Authority, which is a public trust. And there's no real scrutiny there by the mayor, by the London Assembly. They they kind of nominally report to the Department of Transport, but that's only really looking at a kind of freight and, and travel aspect of the Thames. It's not looking at those wider economic points, those cultural, the heritage, the environmental aspect. Anyway, last week, they did announce that the group behind Ocean Diva announced that they were leaving London and they were sailing back um, to EU waters. So local residents are delighted across across the Thames, the ones who would have been really impacted by this. But some of the some people have have kind of deemed it as being kind of nimbies and the fun police and mm. you know oh there they go again the Liberal Democrats you know objecting to things but actually it really was a question of safety and size and it just wasn't appropriate as I always say the clue is in the name this is not an ocean this is a yeah. narrow urban river and yeah I mean I used to work I think actually maybe the offices may have been just to the west of your ward, but often therefore at say lunchtime would have walked through your ward. And yeah, I just, I mean, those streets are quite crowded. You know, it's yeah. it's a very busy area with a lot of small, narrow streets. So I can imagine some legitimate concerns about just how many more people might be in that area, but also just the views across the Thames. You know, if, if you are going to build, you know, essentially install a mammoth object, in this case, you know, a a, a ship rather than a a building, you know, I, I think it is it is a reasonable question as to whether that is the right, you know, the right place. And I think because in general we are so bad in this country at building houses and building infrastructure, there is sometimes an assumption that anyone who's ever worried about protecting beautiful views or worried about overcrowding must really be a NIMBY who's never in favour of anything. But sometimes those arguments absolutely are legitimate, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. And in this case, you know, London was built on the Thames. Absolutely. The river, to my mind, is critical to our economy, but it's also part of our social infrastructure, our heritage. And this vessel was i think an 86 meters long the size of a football pitch a floating football pitch it was really going to dominate the thames it wasn't going to i think energize and animate the thames the other the challenge it it that came to light is it would have say these hundred events a year some static some sailing you can only turn a vessel that size in what's known as the Pool of London, mm. and that's the area between London Bridge and Tower Bridge mm. outside of the Tower of London because of, of the depth of the water. So it would have had to go beneath Tower Bridge 
multiple times. So every time Tower Bridge opens, because the, the bridge has precedent over, mm. over the road, you have a backup of traffic. Now, tourists love to see mm. the bridge open, but that has a knock-on effect on air pollution with all the, the kind of engines of the cars who are sitting kind of waiting for 20 minutes um, on buses. So I think there really is a question of that, of that balance. The other thing that came to light with Ocean Diva that was bandying around this figure of £77 million it was going to bring to the to the UK economy, but there was no real scrutiny of that figure. You know, what is that what is that money going to generate? Who is it going to benefit? Where are jobs going to be created? And as you say, we really couldn't see the benefit that that was going to leave in the in the areas that were going to be most impacted by that. Which leads me on to another point that you you kind of raised yeah. with with this area. There's a lot of change. There's a lot of development, particularly along the riverfront. So we're seeing a lot of investment, still infrastructure levy monies and one of the things that we have as local councils has been really arguing for and pressing for my colleague David Watson in particular is about saying how is that money being spent mm. you know are we ensuring that the money that comes from these large infrastructure projects and these large developments is that actually going back into the communities who are most affected or is it kind of sitting in a pot somewhere and and being you know spent on things that don't really make a difference in people's lives so that's something that we're campaigning on right now so maybe we should take a step back and just think about national politics a little bit or at least the national context which is i think given that you know you're a councillor in a ward in a borough that's very much sort of labor lib dem as the, the contest and national politics particularly in england yeah um is very much about conservatives you know yes or no so how how do you feel what how does that play out in terms of just both your experience of politics, but I guess also just, you know, your experience within the Lib Dems as well, of the fact that so much of the national political story is about the Tories, when locally, you know, your context is is really about Labour rather than the Tories? Yeah, it's it's a really important question, because when we knock on the doors here, it is very rare to meet anyone who has a positive thing to say about the Tories. Mm. They've never actually, I think, achieved over 17% of the vote here. They're just not a feature of the political landscape. Obviously, they're a feature of our of our world, but they're, they're not really, there's very li limited support for them. But everybody feels like the country's going in the wrong direction. It is a unanimous view. <laughs> I've yet to meet anyone who's like, yeah, everything's great, let's keep going. But there is deep frustration, and you'll know this living in London, with Sadiq Khan. He is mm. not a popular mayor. He's almost popular because he's not a Tory. You, very few people point to him and say, gosh, yeah, you know, it's been great. You know, look at all these things he's achieved. He really hasn't. And so he's another one who's who's very, very divisive. And then here in Bermsey and Old Southwark, and we have quite a scandal-ridden Labour MP. He had the Labour whip suspended for 15 months. Mm. So he's not particularly popular either, hasn't covered himself in glory. And I think one of the things that we we are saying to to people is, look, we're pretty com confident that you're going to have Keir Starmer as your next prime minister. The question is, what do you actually want? You know, Do you want to live in a one-party state where you have a Labour mayor, a Labour MP, a Labour prime minister, a Labour council? Because actually, things haven't been great. They have 
significant budgets and how have they actually spent that money and significant powers and has that really made any difference um, to to your life? What can you tangibly point to that you feel has gone well? Because it feels like going back to streets and bins and, and just the general decline, it really feels like we are in a state of managed decline. And that everyone's kind of just biding their time and saying, well, look, we're going to have a general election and then we'll have a change. But you've seen this week with the the kind of rollback on the 28 billion mm. green investment. These things, you just it's kind of U-turn, U-turn, U-turn. And yeah, I want to change a government as much as the next person, but I'm not really feeling any sense of hope of a brighter future being ushered in. And I say certainly here in Labour-run London, I can't say I'm living in a utopia. Now, we can point the finger at various people, but I'd really like to see something. I'd like to have something positive, a bit of hope to be selling. I wonder if we will end up in a few years' time having, I don't know, maybe Stephen Bush writing a really thoughtful piece about how Sadiq Khan turned out to be a role model for Keir Starmer. Um, yeah. Assuming that Keir Starmer, as is reasonably likely, becomes prime minister at some point in the not too distant future. The, the parallel that strikes me between him and Sadiq Khan is in both cases, it's not really clear what they particularly want to change other than not being a shambolic, incompetent, wasteful, sleazy Tory. Now, that's not a bad thing as a starting point, absolutely. But, you know, if you say, how is Sadiq Khan better as a mayor than his, you know, his predecessor? I think it's really hard to point very much, I think, in terms of positive policy substance. Definitely the fact that he's not wasted lots of money on planning, you know, fantasy airport plans that are never going to happen, etc. You know, fair dues, that is better than was before. Boris Johnson had a whole load of horrendous scandals around different people he appointed as deputy mayors and so on in his early years. You know, London government has moved on from that. So, you know, in that sense, I would say Sadiq Khan is an improvement on his predecessor. But what's, you know, what has he actually... And, and I wonder if we're going to end up thinking the same of Keir Starmer, that, you know, his, his, his focus on sort of not being Boris Johnson, like with Sadiq Khan can get you quite a long way in terms of electoral success. But in years to come, is there going to be any real legacy to look back on? Yeah, well, I, I must make a confession that the only time I didn't vote for the Liberal Democrats was in 1997 when I voted for Tony Blair. It was my first first opportunity yeah. to vote. But I felt I was voting for something. I was voting for change. I was voting for hope. You know, things can only get better. And as I say right now, I don't want politics of big personality. You know, I think we've seen that that can be very, very dangerous. And we've seen that under Boris Johnson. You know, it was it was all kind of come in, make a few jokes, you know, and, and just absolutely not taking this job seriously. And for me, politics is a serious business. We need people with integrity. We need people with vision. We need people with passion. But... Yeah, it just feels right now that everything's being played a bit too safe. And as I say, I, I really would like something to vote for. And I think we hear that on, on the doors very much around here. We've always talked about kind of, oh, young people don't vote, you know, they, you know. But what I'm increasingly hearing is the kind of over 65s who are saying, 
I don't want to vote. And, and just that real loss of faith in the system. I say, come on, let's give people something positive. It, it, it just all feels like a bit of a damp squib, really. And, and I think I think that's where us, going back to your original point, it is hard fighting Labour. And to be honest, I think we need to be more progressive than Labour in London, really standing up for those liberal values, but also that liberal vision. You know, we can have a better, brighter future, but you've got to usher it in. You know, you've got to kind of paint the image and then get people to to buy into that and collectively invest in that, both in terms of their time and their energy and their talent. And I, I don't see that really being painted effectively by by labor in any shape or form it's just kind of like look these guys are useless hand over the reins to us and maybe we'll make things better in in a few years time when when we've sorted the economy out but yeah what's the answer which is why i think we can be quite excited about lib dem prospects in london not only obviously with the opportunities coming up in the may elections for the assembly mm-hmm. and mayor but also beyond that, if at some point we have a Labour Prime Minister again, then that will remove that ability of, you know, Labour, for example, in Southwark to basically say, well, you've got to vote for us because of those horrible Tories in Downing Street. And that, you know, which has been, you know, and we shouldn't, in a way, in a sense, decry if voters in local elections sometimes vote on national issues, because after all, that's their choice. You know, that's their yeah. freedom in a democracy to decide to vote that way and of course we have sometimes benefited from unpopular governments helping people but nonetheless it will make it hugely easier for us where we're campaigning against badly run Labour councils in London won't it to have that sort of prop to the Labour vote removed. Yeah and I think something that we absolutely could do better as Liberal Democrats and maybe as local politicians across the country is really actually communicating the role that local government plays in people's lives you know if you haven't got you know good schools access to public services social care you know clean streets you know the ability to to kind of get around transportation links if you haven't got that if you care about the environment who is actually going to put those environmental policies into action the planting of the trees, the maintenance of the trees, solar panels, as you say, the the kind of retrofitting of housing to make it more energy efficient and warmer. If those things aren't happening at the local level effectively, you're not going to be able to have that kind of national growth and that more kind of positive national future that we want as the United Kingdom. And as I say, once again, I really see that the kind of decline we're seeing in London, if London... We don't want London to thrive at the expense of the rest of the country. But if London does well, it is our capital and it it does permeate out and it should do. And I just, yeah, I think we've got to really make that case um, for the value of of, of the kind of local government and local politicians, um, because that's something that we're really known for. And how does that translate into a national message? These are not separate issues. They are related you clearly enjoy being a councillor when you're not being aggravated by it and rightly very passionate about it. So if anyone is listening who is maybe thinking maybe they are or aren't going to stand in the May elections, is there any particular word of, well, first, is there any word of encouragement you would give somebody who's thinking about maybe they want to become a councillor or not? Absolutely. I would say it has been the honour of my life. I undeniably... Mm -hmm 
And I say that that ability to make a real tangible def- difference in your community is something. Yeah. It, if I get booted out in, in a couple of years time, I will still look back on this as, as the greatest that ramp thing I've will done. still be there. That Facebook ramp will still, will still be, be able to get in and out of their houses. That is. Yeah. I mean, it is that is almost your classic political legacy in a way, isn't it? Because that's a real practical difference to people's lives. But so often need somebody just uh, get things sorted to make happen. It's funny you say that, though, because uh, I used to be a, a director at PwC. I'd, I'd kind of lived and worked all over the world. I'd worked in Japan. Um, I'd worked in New York, worked in South Africa. And you know, now if I leave my local area, it's almost like a, a, a great you know, source of excitement. But I, I really thought, well, what can I bring to local politics? And and I think anybody can bring anything. It's about, do you care about people? Do you want to make a difference? And this is a real good way to do it. I would say, though, as a, as a word of caution, mm. the first six months, you feel like you're in a washing machine, you know, on, on some kind of spin cycle. You're kind of floundering around. You've got no idea what you're doing. Yeah, the range of things you're expected to know about, planning, licensing, I say, yes, yeah, social care. It's not just bins, certainly not in a complex borough like, like Southwark. And I think just managing those expectations, knowing who to go to to ask for help. And as I say, really bringing it back and say, we've got 11 colleagues here, you know, knowing who who can support you, who might know know the answers to something. And as I say, I really think the key aspect is that convening power you probably can't make a change with this particular issue, but you can connect with other people who who will want your platform to be able to kind of elevate whatever they can do. And often it's about making those connections, getting out of the way and seeing the magic happen. And that's a really useful tip as well for new councillors about the, maybe they should put a the mark six months on from becoming a councillor in their diary and promise themselves they won't feel overawed by everything until they've got to that date and then they can stop and breathe and realise actually they are getting on top of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And I say, going back to that very basic thing of kind of keeping the list of things you've done, even if it's something as, as small as a ramp or a bin or mm. you know removing some graffiti, you can look at that and say, you know mm. what, that got done because of me. Or somebody raised it with me and I've managed to fix it. And I, I'm proud of that. And I know that their life has been made a little bit better. Those people who were kind of housebound because they didn't have a ramp now can get out of their house. And I think that's that's something to be proud of. And that's something you know, very small in this big, complicated, messy world we live in. I've made somebody's life a little bit better. So That is an excellent note on which to wrap up. I hope listeners have been inspired particularly Lib Dem listeners, but maybe even listeners of supporters of other parties inspired to get into local government for the reasons that that you mentioned, Rachel. And thank you so much for that. Absolutely fascinating. I will see if I can find a photo of Rachel's ramp to include in the show notes uh, for people. And if you want to hear and see more of Rachel taking up issues and pointing at them, you can find her on Twitter or X, as we now have to call it, at Rachel Bentley NB and myself at Mark Pack. And if you like listening, please do tell others about this podcast and give it a rating or review in your favourite podcast app to help feed the algorithm gods. So thank you very much, everyone, for listening. (music) 